Hello and welcome to Unsafe Space. I am your host, Carrie Smith, and I'm here today with my regular co-host, Carter Laren. Hello, Howdy. Carter. Right before I came on camera, this light over here turned on much brighter. <laughs> so, oh. I hope it's okay. <laughs> yeah, your background's still pretty dark, but you look fine. This uh, is a, so. the fanciest setup I've ever had. I'm in a friend's house and I uh, feel like <laughs> Dr. Evil in this chair with my dog on my lap. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty nice, uh, <sighs> Carter. I know you're in a you're in a good mood today. I I said I went from like a not good mood to an ecstatic mood in in like two minutes because of the written, the written house thing has been like I've been obsessed with it. I can't not pay attention to it. I've tried to figure out why. I talked about it a little bit on Wednesday night on the show, but uh, yeah, not guilty on all charges. It gives me I I'm gonna take that little clip of him being. Um, found not guilty, where he breaks down and like falls down at the end of after hearing it. Uh, uh, I'm just going to play that every time I'm like close to being blackpilled. I'm going to play it and be like, oh, yeah, there's hope. There are jurors out there who get it. Uh, there's, there's people who get it in the U.S. Well, and, and they're not, it's not a minority. You'll have to fill me in on what happened because I've missed it. So I I understand that I, I, I was shocked with that burden. I actually thought they were that it would have been decided by the court of public opinion because they weren't sequestered. I was like, well, we know how that's going to go. So, well, yeah, I think it's more, it speaks less to, um, the impartiality of jurors, I think in generally, and, and what you're talking about, because that is a risk. I think it just speaks to how, how clear cut this case actually was. It's really hard to watch all of the evidence and hear the arguments and, and still conclude that he's guilty. Right. Um, so, well, um, we have a very exciting show today. If you guys are tuning in for the first time, this is a live show that Carter and I do on Mondays and Fridays and Fridays. We are joined by friends of the show. Look at the cameras doing weird stuff. I think. Yeah. You just turned into a ghost <laughs> or like an angel, uh, something. <laughs> I'm going to fix it after we introduce our, uh, our, our guests today. Um, we're joined by. My preacher, Bradley Helgerson from Church on the Square, who we've had on before. Hello, Bradley. Hey, guys. How's it going? Good. I'm uh, suddenly. Right. Yeah, you're glowing. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Moses' face when he went before God. He had to wear the veil so he wouldn't freak everybody out. Yeah. <laughs> and Put your veil also, on, Carrie. Yeah. I am so excited for you to meet our other guest, Mark Pellegrino, who we've had on the show before. You are two of the smartest people I know coming together, meeting makes me, being a fly on the wall makes me very excited. So hello, Mark. How are you? I'm good. You I'm look gonna fantastic. Fix... You're glowing. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm going to fix this while Carter starts us off. <laughs> Mark, you just look like, you look awfully chill right now. Yeah. I just got to say. <laughs> I have no choice. I'm exhausted. So I'm just, uh, I'm just. Fair enough. Meeting in That's what I'm doing. Fair enough. Well, before we get started, I do want to remind people they can watch us at unsafespace.com, go to Utreon or where else? Odyssey or YouTube. And I want to thank people who are financial supporters who's, who do that by going to unsafespace.com. Also, I want to remind people that this Sunday, which is two days away, uh, we have Book Club for the Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood, uh, which is one of Carrie's favorite books. So oh. she'll be personally offended if you don't show up. Yes. <clears throat> And I think anybody who don't get your opinion of this book from the the TV show, it's 
It doesn't do it justice. Everything Alyssa Milana has told you about the book is 100% true. I don't know. All right. All right. I, should we jump into some stuff? Yeah, well, I want to hear, since Rittenhouse just happened, why do you think, why are you so emotionally keyed into this case? What does it mean for you? Like, why is your mood good? I mean, other than the fact that someone who you believe to be innocent was found innocent. It's, it's, an, it's been an emotional trial for a lot of people, I think. Yeah, because I think it represents, um, I think it's representative of something. Uh, on the one hand, there's, there's people out there who want to build a world in which uh, the rioters, uh, people who starting fires and looting businesses and like basically nihilist destructive people are being protected from people like Kyle. And then there's people who want Kyle to be protected from them or at least be able to protect himself from them. And there's some kind of a, there's something emotional about that, right? Because you look at Kyle and I think a lot of normies can kind of relate. I mean, he's 17, so we might not all make the same decisions that he did, but uh, I think a lot of normal people who are just don't want to be rioting and don't want to see their businesses get burned down and don't want to see their communities destroyed. Uh, look at this kid and they're like, well, like he's a, you know, would I would I have made all the same decisions? Probably not. But like he, he's there, not trying to destroy, but trying to help. And and to see that, you know, the state takes the side of these absolute despicable individuals who are doing despicable things, um, you know, is it was bothersome. And watching the prosecution and how slimy they were was really they were just. It was really, really bad how dishonest the prosecution was. They um, and so him, they didn't, I didn't watch all of it like you did. I only saw a couple of clips, like the one where he broke down. But didn't they call him a white supremacist? I don't remember if the prosecution did directly or not. But I mean, certainly that was the picture they painted. Uh, and I don't know. So there's something emotional that rang for me as opposed to other trials. And it was it was kind of this. Um, the dark part of me was like, yeah, they're going to convict the guy anyway, because that's the world we live in. And <laughs> where we're being the insane asylum is is being run by the inmates. And that's what's going to happen. But there was another part of me that was like, I really want to see justice done. I want some hope that when you pick 12 average people and show them the actual facts, and it's a very stark, obvious decision, they still can see, right, that we, one does have a right to defend one's life. Yeah. I don't know. What about, does anyone else care? I'm the only person on this broadcast who gave a crap about the Rittenhouse trial. I get that not everyone cares. No, I care very much. Um, I, I, I would put it a little bit differently. I think we've been seeing since the early 90s uh, a greater and greater influence of uh, mob violence and the, the desire of the mob uh, over the due process. And um, uh, in in some cases, uh, race baiters like uh, Al Sharpton go out there and whip up mob discontent, and then they put pressure on jurors to deliver a certain kind of verdict. Certainly happened in the O.J. Simpson case, and and to a degree, it happened in the Chauvin case. Even though he was wrong about what he did, I think the degree to which he was prosecuted demonstrated uh, a a. A, a missing a democratization of the of the due, of due process which i think is very dangerous so what you see in this case is jurors being subjected to the same kinds of pressures the same kinds of interest group violent interest groups are out there agitating 
and threatening and claiming that if they don't get the verdict they want, city more cities will burn because they're you know negativist, nihilistic CUNTs, and uh, and um, they they do these public media threats with impunity, trying to stir up agita, and it had no effect, or at least whatever effect it had was able to get distilled out of the of the jury, through the jury process. And, uh, and I think we were able to see that due process still survives in America. That is a good thing. Now all we need is for police to uh, bust people in the streets who are burning things and hurting people and marching through the streets as if they have a right to march through the streets, which frankly, my, my vision of protest does not extend to. But are they peacefully burning things? Yes, it's yes, peacefully burning things. Yes, when you peacefully so. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, what they've said those things, they've said explicitly that the founder of the 1619 Project, what's her name? She's explicitly said. Cole Hannah-Jones. Yeah, she's explicitly said, like, property crimes aren't crimes. Like, it doesn't hurt anyone. You can, or you can do anything you want to property, and it's not wrong. That's yes. the moral perspective they're bringing. Human Rights Council, who I supported for a time because they supported gay marriage, and then they started trying to impose their worldview on the rest of us, which I promptly drew a line and had a discussion with the 20-something salesperson who was trying to get my donation again. And she did not understand the relationship between property and rights, didn't understand the relationship between property and life, how, how property is the implementation of right and life in the world. And to deprive one of property is to deprive one of life. Right. Even if it takes a while to kill them, it's you're still depriving them of the capacity to live like a human being. Yeah, the left yeah. doesn't the left doesn't make those integrations. They they think we live in a world of a deterministic universe where material values just happen, production just happens, and you're either on one side of the oppression aisle or the other, and depending on which side you're on depends on whether or not you take advantage of that stuff that just happens or you don't get to take advantage of that stuff that just happens. Yeah, well put. Bradley, you've been paying attention to the Rittenhouse trial or are you um, the one who's like, I don't care? Yeah, not as much as, as maybe some of the other things uh, in the past have happened, but one connection for me is there's sort of a personal connection because I grew up not very far from where the trial is taking place. And so, and I guess I've just been paying attention to it more recently, but maybe this is just more of my pessimistic side or my rebellion against my childhood, but I was not optimistic that the jury, when it was facing that kind of pressure, was going to make the right decision. I pretty much thought just from, you know, the my experiences growing up, that they would just conform to the pressure. They would just give in. Um, so I'm actually, I didn't know, I didn't know the virgin until you said something. So I'm actually quite pleased that uh, my kinsman uh, in the Midwest, you know, actually did the right thing. Because there were those reports, Carrie told me about these reports about how perhaps there were one or two jurors who were resistant and afraid. Maybe that's, you know, maybe that's not true and made up. Yeah. But um, it, that didn't surprise me, those reports. And I, I just was not very optimistic. So, you know, prove me wrong. Maybe I'm just pessimistic. And I have a distorted view of my childhood, my, my youth that... Uh, it's, it's probably not re representative of the truth. Hey, but yeah, it's not I want 
it's not unreasonable to be pessimistic. The whole culture is infected by poison right now. That's true. The whole culture, and it has purchase everywhere. You know, we're we're using the left's lexicon for everything to describe everything. It's now in our heads. Yeah. And um, and it does. It's not far from that to um, starting to look through the prism that they're looking through and evaluating everything through that prism, which is terribly distorted, really off, but has enough of a grain of truth that it's able to have a certain amount of sustainability. Yeah. yeah. Do you think if this had happened in, if the jury was selected from twelve citizens in? LA that we would have seen the same verdict or you think you need to be in, in more in the heartland to get this kind of justice in LA I don't think most people understand the relationship of guns to human liberty they don't understand guns they don't understand what types of responsibility that um, endows a gun owner with um, they tend to want to cede moral agency to these big institutions and let them control what we do and how we do it and they they think that's normal so i mean uh they're 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 frightened and i've had discussions with actors who are anti-gun and it's not an intellectual position they hold a no. deeply a deeply felt emotional conviction and they can't be moved um but it's largely dominated that, that emotional conviction by fear and ignorance. Yeah. yeah. I think they would have easily bought into the prosecution's argument that anyone who has a gun has no, has, because you, because you have the gun, you therefore have no right to claim self-defense. Isn't that what he said? It was a circular argument. Something he like said, that. Yeah. yeah if you you're asking gun, for trouble. So you, you, you therefore use it. And, right. And Having a gun need... itself is inciting some kind of there you go. yeah. It's yeah. provocation. Yes. Unbelievable. Yeah, because they view it as a bad thing to have. There's it. A, there's a certain part of me that it accepts to a degree, even though it's bad. The defense stretching the truth and making it a bit elastic to try to provide the most bigger defense for their client. But the idea that the state is doing it to try to prosecute a person who is simply exercising his lawful right is very disturbing. Yes, I agree with you. I, I would give a lot more leeway to, even if it was someone who I really thought was guilty and was a bad guy, I give a lot more leeway to the defense trying to stretch the truth as much as possible or do whatever or make outlandish arguments because they're doing anything they can to protect this person from being wrongfully convicted, and that's kind of their job. But the state really should only go, be going after people in in a i mean theoretically should be going after people only in a as objective as a as possible like they should be we really think this is true this these are the facts we're not trying to stretch them we're not trying to make arguments that are reaching we think this is a slam dunk case that's why we're going after it and we're just going to lay out the law and lay out the facts and you know explain why the law applies to the facts it should be so, an impersonal robot and not not one that's political and has an agenda Right, right. All right. So I want to take advantage of the two of you in particular being here to have a conversation that I've I've heard people are now having on on Twitter to a certain degree, and also, um, I I watched Mark the conversation that you and Carter had a while back. Two atheists talking about religion, and yeah. yes, 
And I, <laughs> and I wanted to say to you, because I, I got very clearly from that, that you think that at a certain point, Christians and atheists can't be allies in this culture war against bad ideology. And I'm not sure if I agree with you or disagree with you. So I wanted to know if we could talk about that. It made me kind of think about how Brett Weinstein, he has a, a video called How the Magic Trick is Done, where he talks about the discovery that liberals are something very different from these social justice authoritarians, the like the woke, and how you're walking, it's almost like they're walking along the same path and they and the liberals may not realize that at a certain point, they diverge completely, right? And they're going off in different directions because it seems like up until a certain point, we have the same goals, we're working for some of the same things and then they diverge. Is that how you view uh, Christians who are opposed to woke ideology and, and atheists who are opposed to it? Is that at a certain point we necessarily have to split apart? Well, first of all, I don't think leftists and liberals are walking in any, in, in, with any synchronicity at really any point in their uh, in their journey. I think the modern view of the liberal as somebody who pushes the state as a means of achieving social ends is not liberalism. So um, I think leftists, which frankly represent that notion, um, uh, would use the state to promote social uh, ends that they want to promote. No liberal wants to do that. No real liberal wants to do that. Their sole, their sole focus is to mitigate force and to leave the individual as free as possible to pursue their own values um, and exchange freely with other people. That's liberalism. That's not what left, left, leftism is. It, it, even from the tradition of the, of the National Assembly in, in Paris, you had radical sort of democracy versus the, uh, versus the monarchists. And radical democracy is just an anarchistic mess, as we saw in the Great Terror. It's not, it's not liberal. Um, it's something else. Now, can, can atheists and Christians um, walk a similar path for a time? Yeah, sure. I, I, I find that Christians right now are the, at the front lines of a free speech movement, at the front lines of... Some. You know, some Christians. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. But, okay. Some. Um, and, and some are at the front lines of the uh, freedom of religion uh, concept, but they, in the end, uh, a, a rational egoist like myself and that religionists are going to part ways in a very fundamental way. Um, you know, politics is a reflection of our epistemology and our ethics, and, and the epistemology and ethics of a, a rational individualist is very different from a faith-oriented person. Um, so, and at some point, at some point, that, that faith, faith reason is going to, is going to clash. And, and, all of, and all of the political implications that go with faith and, and reason require very different to government and the world and other people. So I, I oh, go, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I think I agree that because there's really two questions in my mind is the first one is in the present moment, what are we going to do with the crisis that we face right now? And then long term, you know, what are we going to do long term would be a second question. And I think on the first question, I think it's actually essential 
that we join together to fight against this imminent or, or, or present, clear and present danger. And that, you know, when we get beyond it, yeah, there's going to be critical differences, fundamental differences. But I wonder if I can sort of uh, make that point by trying to, at least from my view, lay out what I think is sort of the central problem. Because I think if we think about the central problem with the, with the present threat we have, I think it exposes a lot, not in the details, but in a real general sense, I think it exposes where we have real allegiance on some level. Um, and then we can talk about why uh, joining together would be essential, I guess. And then we can talk about um, the, the uh, core differences moving forward, how we might mitigate those or, or deal with them. Um, if that's okay with everybody, can I just lay out my thinking? Yeah, on please. That fine? Okay. Um, it seems to me, and, and, and maybe at first you guys are going to think this is completely insane, um, but it seems to me that the issue that we're facing is one of hubris, ultimately. That what's happened over the last 300 years or so is that our culture has developed a bit of an ego problem. And I don't mean that in the, in the rational egoist sense, because I think I want to come back to that notion, because my view of Christianity is, is perhaps not the one that most people, at least in the 20th century, uh, were promoting. Um, so I want to come back to that piece. But I think, the, I think we have an ego problem. We've developed an ego problem. And part of that is understandable because we've had such significant uh, advancement, scientific and technological advancement. But it wasn't that long ago that we were essentially an agrarian society, which is to say that our very existence was totally dependent upon the seasons, right? So a farmer has the responsibility to plow his field and to scatter the seed and to you know, put down some fertilizer. But other than that, he has zero control over the success of his crop. He is, he was totally at the mercy of his environment. And when you're living in that world, the authority of the natural world is obvious. It's plain to everyone, right? It's inescapable. Meaning the idea that the world is as it is, and you can either conform to that world or you can choose not to. But if you choose not to conform to reality, then calamity comes upon you. And it comes upon you in, a, in an immediate kind of sense. And so if you sow too late or reap too early, right, you, you face dire consequences. It's starvation and death. And it seems to me that in part, technology, and I'm, I'm, I'm not against technology, I'm not technophobe in any sense, but I think one of the downsides of technology, plus other things, is that it's, it's sheltered us from that reality. It's sheltered us from the natural law that you reap what you sow. And it sheltered us in a sense that it has, it has either mitigated or even eliminated the natural consequences of this kind of denial of reality. And also it's prevented generations now of learning those lessons, that kind of experiential knowledge that you get from, you know, you talk back to uh, Mother Earth a few times and, you know, eventually she's going to take off her shoe and smack you with it, right? You, you learn that lesson if you're not sheltered from that. And it's not just technology, it's parents. And I mean, it's like the whole system is now geared towards sheltering us from this truth. 
And so uh, all of that to say that, well, and here's, and here's perhaps the best illustration given our current context, the advancements in medical technology right, has so um, sheltered us or, or so you know, mitigated the idea of suffering and sickness. It, it, it's, it's so removed those things that we have a virus that comes upon us in which the death rate is less than 1%, right? And we totally lose our mind. I mean, we lose our brains, yeah. right? You have grandparents who are throwing their grandchildren under the bus in order to save themselves, right? And so um, all that to say is that I think at the center of this, I think, is an identity crisis. And it comes from this approach to identity, what I used to call an autonomous approach to identity, but I don't think that's exactly right. It has an element of it, of, of autonomy, but it's really a rebellious kind of identity um, that we're, or, 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 or the, con the creation of, of our identity is, is, is through the process of rebellion. And what I mean by that is, rather than looking outwardly to objective reality, to determine for us who we are, Right to tell us, you know, what is a value and and what what is meaningful and where our purpose is to be. Rather than looking at objective reality, we've turned that quest or that that process inward entirely to the subjective. It to this, you know, to a psychological notion of identity, where my current psychological state is who I am in my essence. Right, and so the process is one that's totally autonomous. You are the one who's supposed to look inside yourself and decide from these competing desires who is the authentic you and who is the not authentic you. And, and here's the thing. It, what it's done is it's made the ultimate ethic of our culture to, to be that you must have courage to express that identity regardless of what your family says or your church or your school or your community, or you know, the culture, or even reality itself, right? Reality be damned, you know, this is who I am is sort of the postmodern ethos. And it seems to me, and, and maybe this is an exaggeration, but it seems to me that in the history of human civilization, or recorded history anyway, that I don't think there's ever been a rebellion against the natural and sacred order to this extent. And I think the, the results of it are gonna be utter calamity. In other words, to use you know, a biblical metaphor, we're building a tower of Babel, or some of us are building a tower of Babel. And the end result of that story is the annihilation of civilization. And so- To your, to your point oh, about identity coming from like this ethic about, uh, uh, I forget the way you phrased it just now, but of looking inward and that the ethic is to be courageous enough to express whatever your identity is. I just saw yeah. this morning, I don't know if you follow the Twitter account, Libs of TikTok, but it was two girls who are cat people and have fashioned their right. teeth into fangs and have each other right. on leashes. And it's like, yeah, I'm so brave being me. This is who I am, a cat person. Right. It's an absolute <laughs> and, rebellion against the natural order. Right. And there are consequences for that. And we've been we've been protected from those consequences, but eventually they will come. And so it seems to me that if we were going to save the nation, 
right? Save our culture. What would it would require is a cultural conversion, or at least a large swath, or maybe it's not that big. But you know, it, it sort of road to Damascus experience. Part of which would be a real humbling of ourselves to reality, right? Um, and now, as a Christian, I would say that would include all of reality, including the transcendent. But I think apart from that kind of, um, you know, revival, and maybe I guess what we need is a reality revival. Apart from, and who would have thought that you'd need such a thing? But apart from that kind of revival, it seems to me that the the only recourse we then have is because people are already divided. You know, as they say, the cold um, civil war has already begun and people are dividing and eventually those doctrinal differences will harden. And then, and then the only recourse then is, I think, you know, likely is separation uh, from this group of people who are bent on denying the natural order. And uh, to use another metaphor, it's, it seems to me, because some Christians would say, no, you can't, you know, we shouldn't separate ourselves from those people. They're lost and we need to proclaim the gospel to them. But I view it in biblical terms, you know, like Lot pitching his tent in Sodom and Gomorrah, right? It's like this place is going down and it's going down big time, right? And so we want to have our tents as far away from uh, Sodom and Gomorrah as possible because wrath is coming. Not only, I would believe, divine wrath, but natural. The wrath of Mother Nature is coming. And so... Um, all that to say, I think the situation is that dire. And the only way in my mind that we can do something about that is to join forces. Because I, I think, and many people have noted, that, noted this, is that what the people who are ruling now, what they want to do is separate us, right? They want to break us up in as, as many small groups as they possibly can so they can dominate us. If we come together to push back against this primal uh, problem, I don't think that they, I don't think they'll be successful. I think we would be successful. So on the first point, that's sort of my thinking that lies behind and I what the problem is. on for a really long time. Yeah. So what do you guys think of that? Mark, I want to let you be the first one to respond. To that. <laughs> you said a lot. There's yeah. Those, sorry. There's yeah. a lot in there. I forget uh, many of the other stuff that I should respond to. I agree with you that I think we need a, a, a renaissance of reality or, and or reason. There was a time uh, when we, we were, when Western culture was a reason forward culture and it resulted in the Renaissance and the enlightenment and gave us the industrial revolution and the advancements that we see today. But, but paralleling that in the 1800s, in the, in the early 1800s, was a romantic movement that was enamored of the emotionalists like Rousseau and that were all about feelings, feelings as, and, and the purity of feelings, and the purity of animal nature, and a return to something primal. And this became dominant. I think it became dominant in our culture. It was dominant in France. It dominated the intellectuals because feeling is a lot easier than thinking. And that resulted to me in a, a, a marginalization of reason as a means of knowing what's real and what isn't. Um, and of course, many philosophers participated in this. Many philosophers bought the primacy of conscious notion, which religionists buy as well, 
that's where the skeptics and the religionists agree and where we're going to part ways is that reality isn't the primary consciousness is primary the individual skeptics are just saying their own consciousness the religionists are saying this big consciousness that we call god and are a part of Right. But in the end, they both are married skeptically and enemies of the natural world to a degree. Um, and, and finding that flashpoint where that disagreement happens is, is going to be a very, very uh, problematic issue. Um, look, I mean, we allied ourselves with, uh, with Joseph Stalin to, to beat Hitler, but we were allying ourselves with someone who was not unlike Hitler um, and, and ended up that that union end up um just you know dictating the uh the national policy for 70 or 80 years and uh, the 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 and the antagonism between the two philosophical and economic schools that could not be compromised um ended up fighting each other in proxy wars for 67 67 years afterwards when my point of view is reason has to be ascendant that's the that's the one, and it can't be compromised. Um, religionists make the, the the reason religionists are slightly better is because they make a concession to natural law, they make a concession to a, a, the fact of reality. But at some point, don't. At some point, throw it away, um, and and endow a supernatural being with the capacity to interfere um, and to change the natural world according to their wants and wishes. So yeah, the, the 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 brood now that's taking over are emotionalists. They've they've they deny the efficacy of reason, except they give us scientific reasons why reason doesn't capture uh, reality. The religionists don't give us scientific reasons why reason doesn't ca capture reality. And because they have captured science in academia, they have a stronger case and they can move forward much easier than the religionists. When many people's minds are just throwbacks to a day and age uh, of superstition that, uh, you know, that should largely be forgotten. I see. Uh, can I jump in for a second? I, I see the when you say like historically we aligned with with Stalin to defeat Hitler and and Stalin wasn't all that different from Hitler. I completely agree. And one of the ways we've talked about that on the show before is sort of uh, just to really generalize it is, you know, Stalin, Hitler, fascist, Marxist, they all believe at some point that they believe the government owns you. They don't believe in self-ownership. And I know you have, you, that's not necessarily the phrase. Individual sovereignty is how Individual sovereignty is yes. the way you would say it. They don't believe in individual sovereignty. Um, right. Do you think that Christians don't believe in individual sovereignty? Because I think I do. Am I confused? Like, I don't believe the government owns us. Or it should tell us who to worship or anything. Well, that's good. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think America has the unique, the unique moral landscape of of re religion being an independent and individualized phenomenon. That's not necessarily anywhere else in the world. I think that's just the accident of how we grew up and how we were left alone for individual colonies to sort their own stuff out, and and the way everybody was sort of an owner and a holder of land and a self-sufficient person and that created a particular kind of being that we don't see over most of the world for the a, a, a unstated ethics um, and I think aspects of Christianity adjusted to that aspects of Protestantism Protestantism adjusted to 
the capitalist work ethic, the idea that it was okay to prosper in the world, um, but not all of them did. I mean, religion is a is a uh, it's an emotionalist roller coaster, and there there are no objective standards, and the proof of that is in the thousands of different sects that you know claim that you know whatever whatever idea they're promoting is the primary idea that needs to be promoted as a Christian. Um, and and there's no way, they're not wrong, you, you know? The only way you can claim they're wrong is by holding some other arbitrary construct and saying, you know, actually it's this. Um, so, yeah, it, in the end we have, we have a unique religious structure that I think is uniquely independent and uniquely glued into some of our institutions. I don't think it's the source of them, as conservatives would say. I think enlightenment reason was the source of it, not God, not the Bible. Um, even though even some of the founders may have suggested that, I think it was far above that. Um, I think they expected a moral, a free people to be moral, and the you know the, the vast amount of morality at the time was probably being taught through the Christian ethics, so they assumed that that's what what people would follow. But religion certainly has developed here as an, as an independent organism that is in some respects tied to some very good ideas uh, with respect to individual autonomy. But it's accidental because they're perfectly willing to breach that autonomy whenever they feel like it. They're perfectly willing to breach it over abortion. They're perfectly willing to breach it uh, over certain books that they don't want published. They're perfectly willing to bre breach it over stem cell research. They're perfectly willing to breach it in a number of ways. Um, they're not. They're not. They're not um, comfortable with the idea of full liberty for lots of reasons. Mm -hmm. So, in that respect, to me, they're very. They're very close to the skeptics. Who are not comfortable with either. I'll go ahead, Bradley. Oh, I was just going to say. I wanted to go back to the. You started with sort of a brief history of of the West, at least the last. Uh, I, I guess maybe six, five hundred, six hundred years starting with the Renaissance and moving forward through the Enlightenment and then to the Romantic period. How I view that is not that Romanticism emerged out of nowhere, right? That it just sort of, people just decided that they didn't like reason and, and so they chose emotion over reason. And maybe that's not what you're saying, but uh, that's how it's often depicted, that it's just sort of this, this decline into, um, you know, poor sloppy thinking and, and you know, in this sort of depraved spirit. I read the romantic period as, as being in part a response to the death of religion and also in, the, in, in specifically the death of Christianity, but also in a response to sort of the cold hard rationalism, which is to say that, I mean, even if you thought about it from evolution, an evolutionary point of view, as people say that man has a religious instinct, and certainly that's a theological uh, truth. Man has, a, see, man has a philosophical, man is philosophical because he's a rational being, so he does have a desire to know, and religion was one way of knowing. And I would agree with you that the Romantic movement was in, in part a, a reaction against the death of religion and the increasing secularization, but also the mechanization and industrialization of our culture, which, as far as I'm concerned, was great. They didn't. They had a pastoral view of the world, and so they. Yeah. I, but I will say, you know, this this subtraction narrative. It's been popular. It was 
you know, popular maybe more so 70 years ago and in, in within the last maybe, you know, maybe 50, 60 years before that. But the subtraction narrative that says essentially that, you know, religion worked when we are more pr primitive society, but now we've grown up and it's time to put our big boy pants on and put religion behind us. I think, you know, if you read people like Charles Taylor and I mean, many sociologists think that that subtraction narrative is just, if you look at the history itself and the, and the evidence, it's just wrong. People cannot leave religion behind, that there is a religious instinct, that there is something, there's a kind of meaning that's unique to religion, that the religious experience and in and, and what traditional religions present, that, you know, or for, you know, for example, Clay Rutledge, who's a um, research psychologist, he's not a believer, that's not a Christian writing this, but he wrote a book a couple of years ago called Supernatural, in which he investigates this as he's comparing. Hey, he's on that show. Of, I'm sorry. Oh, he's, uh, <laughs> he's, he's comparing, um, you know, traditional religions like Christianity to religious substitutes, because that's what's taking place. The reason why, you know, you have this collapse of wokeism into a religion or it develops into a religion is because there is this need for meaning that goes, you know, that, that religion in particular nourishes, right? It's a unique kind of meaning that's tied to the transcendent. And so it, if, if that's true, that's why I say, and even if I think if you look through the history of romanticism and you read the romantics beyond Rousseau, um, is what you see is a longing for the transcendent that's not there in the kind of cold rationalism that, that is starting to dominate. Your language and, creates a false dichotomy. <laughs> yes. Your, your, you. your language on its face. Uh, language on what? I'm sorry. On its face mm. separates uh, reason and feeling. Um, and you're right in this sense. Ayn Rand wrote a book called Philosophy Who Needs It. It was a rhetorical question because the answer is you do, everyone does, any rational being does, because you don't have automatic knowledge, you need a way of looking at the world. And that's what philosophy should provide. Now, most philosophers have reneged on that responsibility and played parlor games and intellectual games um, over, over making philosophy a utilitarian value in the individual's life, which means it, it, it it's a structure of ethics with which you look at yourself, how you should act in the world, how you should behave around others. It's a system of politics, how one's ethics translates into social circumstances. It's an epistemological thing. How do you know what you know? And it's it's a metaphysical thing. Is what is here real? Is it what it is? Yeah, yes. I don't agree. I don't disagree with any of that. I mean, yeah. of course. But what I'm talking about is worship. I'm talking about something that goes beyond that. Oh, Something I, that ties you to the transcendent. Right. Well, the trans well, that's transcendent is in art. The transcendent for the rational philosopher who actually doesn't reject reality, embraces own rationalism, but actually believes that his mind's purpose is to understand the universe and himself, embraces art as the transcendent experience. The experience of concretizing values in the real world, even building and producing, is a transcendent experience because you are creating something out of nothing. That is a miraculous act that only human beings can engage in. Can I ask a question just so I'm clear? And maybe the yeah. audience needs to be clear too. One, I, I just, I'm not clear on what false dichotomy you said 
Bradley was creating, just so I know what that those two choices are, the false choices. Hard reason or feelings. Hold reason hard or reason. feelings. It, yeah, it's like we're he's he's giving us the false dichotomy of Dr. McCoy or Spock, and that's not what reason right. is about. No, I I don't think it is either. What the point I was making? Reason is an integration of that stuff. So you can you can be perfectly you can be emotional, and I think emotions are uh, and passions are part of how you discover the truth. They're they're a reward, for example, for doing it right. They're a penalty in some ways for doing it wrong. If you right. values are wired right, but there's yeah. not one or the other. No, I and that's I'm, uh, I wasn't being clear. Then what I was saying is. What was being communicated to people was the Dr. Spock model that it, it and how they read it was it's about cold, hard, logical decisions that you should get your emotions completely under control. In fact, it would be better if you didn't have emotions at all, because all that mo emotions will do will lead you astray. They will prevent you from doing the rational thing. I mean, the, the character of Spock doesn't come out of nowhere. Right. It comes out of this kind of teaching. And I I agree when it comes to the hierarchy of how I would describe it, the hierarchy of the human heart. Certainly there is an integration between reason and delight. In fact, what I would say and I and I wonder if uh, Ayn Rand would agree with me on this is that what ultimately rules in the hierarchy of the human heart is delight. What actually drives us at the end of the day is that which we take delight in. In other words, Human beings were designed in order to stalk after joy, as one writer uh, put it, Flannery O'Connor put it that way. And so that's why a system of ethics works, especially a system of virtue ethics like Rand's system, which is to say that there is one supreme good, right? And we are, I would say, designed in order to seek after that. In fact, that's, I mean, Aristotle says this too, right? You don't do anything unless it's in pursuit of some particular good. So my sense is, and this is, uh, this is, you find this in Augustine, in the Christian tradition, Augustine, Aquinas, you find it in um, Jonathan Edwards, is the idea that we're driven by delight. And delight tells desire what to want, and that's what drives the will. So so I would affirm, yes, nobody makes, you know, there's not a, there's not a distinction between the idea of the affections and the will, or even of the reasoning mind. But in my understanding is that what reason is, is it's, it's kind of um, a, um, a counselor to delight. So if, if delight is king, then reason comes along to counsel delight as to that which, you know, if there's two options, that which would bring the greatest delight. In other words, it's a tool that's used, like in ethics, right? I think this is the Randian system, is that, that at, at the base of our system is some objective moral value, right? which stands as, as the ground. And then what gives reason its value is that it functions as a tool by which you can then reason to the various means for achieving that particular end. I mean, isn't that, I mean, that's how virtue As long as you're using the words. word, yeah, but you need to use the word objective carefully because Rand, when she uses the word objective, does not mean there's something outside of the human capacity for uh, knowing. It's not an external... Often when, when, when mystics use the word objective, they mean because you've reasoned your way to it, it's not objective because you have some means that's fallible of coming to conclusions. Therefore, that's non-objective. And objective means this third party, it could be God, it could be something else that sets up a rule. And yeah. that's not what, Rand didn't say, here are some objective 
ethical or moral rules. What she did was start with, uh, actually prior to reason was just basic metaphysics. Here we are, here's reality, right? Like, right. Um, in fact, she reversed, she reversed uh, the Descartes, I'll think, therefore I am. She explicitly reversed it and said, no, I am, therefore I'll think, right? It's my means of survival. That's that's what I I I am regardless of how I choose to to behave. Now I need to behave in a way that corresponds with reality, and to do that is reason, and that does involve uh, it does involve emotional considerations. And emotions are my motivation, and as Mark said, my reward. And like I'm an, I'm a being with emotions, and that's all rational to consider. Sure. Um, yeah. And so I, well, and, I, yeah. and I think in the virtuous selfishness, does she not say? that the, the ultimate good, the supreme good, that's the foundation of our system of ethics is life, right? Meaning that an individual's ultimate end is, you could say, his, his own existence, right? That's I the, think that will be the, the, the standard of philosophy, right? That's the reason to pursue philosophy, because your standard is life. Right. So right. that's what gives reason its value, is it connects you then with the means for obtaining life right that's how reason is above yes. that 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 foundation yes, but not just in a material so, sense in a in an no. emotional sense as well yeah oh yeah absolutely but i guess well in how i just to define the terms but how i'm thinking of objective moral values and duties is is in the more and i know it's hotly contested but i think most people agree at a minimum that it has to do with that these things are mind independent right that that this particular moral fact that you know that it's a fact is not dependent upon my subjective you know whether i believe it or not or it's not based upon my own personal preference this is talking about some aspect of reality right it's objective in that sense not subjective meaning it's a creation you know its value is created in my own mind does that make sense so it's mind independent meaning objective well sort of i mean i have when you're talking about values, you're talking about something that is dependent on your context. And so you, sure. yeah. so in a sense, it's, it's an objective, let's say, um, let's say, uh, yes, if I, if I want to pursue a healthy diet and get in shape and objectively, there are values that I can pursue to do that, eat certain kinds of foods at certain kinds of times and exercise and a, a whole host of objective um, things that I could do to pursue that value, but it, but still, it's it's nevertheless contextual right. to me. There is an element of subjective want and um, desire. And okay, well, can I ask you a question about that? Because uh, this is this is something I've been curious about. Because there was a period of time. My my knowledge of Rand's writings is eclectic. Um, the part that I know something about is because there was a period of time where I was studying moral ontology, and so I read her non fiction works that related to that particular subject, like the um, Virtue of Selfishness and a few other documents. And, and I read some of her interpreters, people like Tara Smith and, and, and others. And my sense of her system of ethics, as far as the meta-ethical level, which is to say how it's grounded, is that, you know, when she says that, in other words, so you have the found, you, you need some for a moral system, it, at least it seems to me, and maybe I don't, we don't want to get in this too deeply, but I'm just curious about it to see, you got, see what you guys, how you read Rand uh, compared to how I read her. But um, in any, in a system, I'm, I'm trying to speak somewhat precisely, but in a system of virtue ethics, like the one that Rand puts forward, because she's very influenced by um, Aristotle. How that system works is that you have that particular supreme good 
right? The, the, the ultimate end of man lies at the foundation of that system, right? And then, as we said, we use reason then to determine the various means by which we obtain that particular ultimate end. And so the value of those other goods is relative to the value of the foundation. Does that make sense so far? Yes, mm -hmm. okay. So the questions I've had about her system, and this is, and this happens in, in virtue ethics, and I, I feel like Mark was touching on this and just saying, yeah, that's the way it is, um, is that the particular foundation she chose, which is life or the idea of, of existence, right, being the ultimate good that all other goods are based upon, that in and of itself, and other people have pointed this out, but that does, you know, that's, that it, you know, if you do the infinite regress or the regress, right, where an, an example of this is you say to your kid, don't hit your sister. And he says, why shouldn't I hit my sister? And you say, well, it causes her pain. And she says, and then they, and the son says, well, why do I care if I cause her pain? You know, it goes on and on. And what you're looking for is that bedrock, right? Which seems to me to be an intrinsic good that's not derived from some other good, right? Because that would then be the foundation, right? So you're looking for something in which that regress will end because it can't just go on forever. And so your, your child is actually looking for that um, objective moral fact that grounds reality and not just ground ethics, as you said, but grounds epistemology. So the issue I have with Rand's choice of, of existence is that it's, it's, it's not uh, an intrinsic good, right? Because you could just as simply ask, well, why not non-existence? You know what I mean? It, in other words, it's not immune to the why question like an intrinsic ground would be. It, it suggests, if there's a choice, that suggests that there's another value that's underneath it that will then give you the ability to choose between life and non-life. It's not that life itself is the base value, if that makes sense. And so, and I think Rand, Rand notes this, this uh, issue and, and she, she, what her response to it is, is that, that well, non-life is irrational. And so that's, and she means it in the Kantian sense, which is that it would be essentially a contradiction, it ends in contradiction or ends in an impossibility. And so I'm just wondering if, if you guys have thought about that notion, because it seems to be that there is a choice at the foundation of her ethics, which then, depending on how you define objectivity, would, would affect what do we mean by objectivity exactly if we're making a choice at the base of it, right? Especially if, if it's not based upon something, some other value. The contradiction of what, what I hear you saying is the denial of choice in ethics when it's the very foundation of principle ethics. Where there's no choice, there's no ethics. Ethics is dependent upon a reasoning being who has the will to, to, uh, to choose between alternatives. And even to choose to focus or not to focus, um, it's still it's still just because ethics is the realm of choice, whether individual choice or the choices that you make with respect to the people you live amongst in society. Um, the highest value you are attempting to attain is life as a human being, in a reasoning, productive um, human being. But what gives that, what gives life its value? Because it's not intrinsically valuable because otherwise it would be immune to the why question, right? There wouldn't be an option of choosing one or the other. 
So it seems to suggest that in order to choose life versus non-life, there's some other value that's functioning as a foundation, that's, right? That's, that's where ethics lives. It lives in that choice between life and death. But if it has no foundation that's sound that and solid, then none, in other words, if you don't have one, one truth that's intrinsic and then you base the system on the rest, just like epistemology, if you don't have some kind of knowledge at the ground, you, whatever you build on top of it collapses, right? If, if what's at the bottom is an arbitrary choice, then at least in the way that people usually use the notion of objective moral values and duties, you don't find it, right? So you're, can I jump in, can Mark? Uh, yeah. Go, I, I just, you're using the word intrinsic in a way that I'm not sure, I'm not sure I know what that means. It feels okay. like, it feels like you mean something that we can't possibly perceive no, ourselves. That's some kind of like Let me define it, sorry. Thing. All yeah. I mean by it is that its value is not derived from something else. Because if it's if its value is derived from something else, then that becomes the foundation, right? So, it if for something to serve as a foundation, it has to be here. In, in the way that Aristotle would put it, is that it's good in and of itself. And so okay, it's to so be but that, okay. for its own. So it's to be pursued for its own sake. That's what okay. the supreme good is, right? Okay, but I think I, Mark might disagree with me about this. But I think that that choice is an inescapable element of the human condition that if you choose death you're you're perfectly will you could build an entire system on death as your i don't i want anti-life and non-existent now the system could be very easy you might as well just let your wrists and die and that can be the end that we're having a conversation about ethics precisely because we are we are in agreement that we want to live that is the goal and if it's not the goal this conversation is irrelevant because if it's not the goal we can just shrivel up and die there's no need to have an entire system and and ask questions if non-existence is the goal right you're, but, right go ahead Mark. right i think it, it, that of course if non-existence is the goal there's no such thing as value because value only has a relationship to life and to living things so to me that's what makes life I don't want to say intrinsic, but fundamental, axiomatic to the concept of value. Yeah, because you're, you're, you're assuming the value that you're trying to ground. What you're, right? what you're doing instead, um, because you have issues with the fact that human beings can choose between life or death, so it must not be fundamental, is arbitrarily putting a, 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 a being there's no evidence in saying this is the fundamental. This is the intrinsic thing where everything is. Well, I mean, Christianity Christianity could be totally false. The, the the proposition that God exists could be completely false, and it doesn't doesn't do anything to to what I and other people have seen as the problem of Rand's ethical system is that it doesn't have an intrinsic ground, and therefore it doesn't function as 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 objective. It, it turns Can I ask into a question? subject intrinsicism in a way that no objectivist uses intrinsicism. I don't think I don't think. Uh, any objectives, and I'm not speaking. Well, any. Tara Smith, Tara Smith just admits this. She just not, says, "Yes, this system of ethics is objective I, I only was, for the people who choose." Let me speak. Let me speak. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I was not. I was not. Um, I'm not. I'm not an expert, and not as much of an expert as Tara, although I've read all of her stuff. Um, but the idea of anything being morally, morally, intrinsically moral, is 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 not a concept. I think objectivists um, relate to. We don't think things are things in themselves are intrinsically morally or immoral. They're contextual. You can have basic virtues, which are actions that 
um, lead you to the pursuit of values, but I don't think you can speak of, of intrinsicism in, in the way that you're speaking of it. I may be wrong about that, but... Well, it's uh, certainly possible that there is an intrinsic value. I mean, it's certainly possible because we could conceive of one, right? Um, at least it's logical. Wait, wait, wait. What, what intrinsic value? What do you mean you could conceive the of concept one? I, I can't. I don't think. Well, God would be an intrinsic value. He himself That's is the good. standard in his essential sure. nature. But all joy. I'm just using that as an example to say it's logically possible for there to be an intrinsic value because we can conceive of one. Whether or not there actually is one is a totally different question. But so, because Sarah Smith, what she says in her book, Viable Values, is she just says, yeah, that's right. You know, it's, it is a choice, right? But what's weird about it is it's not a rational choice you make because reason is, reason is above the ultimate ethic, right? The, the, the thing that gives reason its value is, is life itself, right? So the choice between life and non-life is not a rational choice. It's a pre-rational choice that one has to make which, you know, is the definition of arbitrary, but she just says... The definition of axiomatic. It's the definition of axiomatic because yes. all reason comes from your existence. It comes well, from... Axi axiomatic is not based upon um, arbitrary value. choice. It would be a, it would be a, have a necessary... It's not arbitrary. That's Mark's point is it's not arbitrary. It's irreducible. It's irreducible. Yep. In other words, all values matter because of life. Reason okay. matters because of life. It's irreducible. It's the irreducible primary of existence. You're going beyond it because you're not comfortable with it and you think it's not intrinsic, so you create some other value that you claim is, even it's, though there's no If it was irreducible, then it would be intrinsic. That's what I'm trying to say. It's not irreducible because you have a choice. You could choose life Can or non-life. Can I non -life. Yes. for the chat? I'm going to say, here, this conversation, I'm going to say, uh, for dummies like myself, I'm going to reduce it to... Are, what we're asking about here, so that I'm clear, are you saying that, um, Bradley, that 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 there has to be an underlying intrinsic value underneath life itself, but that the objectivists seem to be saying that it that it that there's nothing underneath that, that it's just obvious that we we all agree that life is intrinsically valuable, but because I would yeah. say if, if that's what you're saying, like couldn't something like joy be underneath? Like the value that why you choose life over not life. Why I mean, why value joy, right? It's that's higher up in the system, so it's 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 going to be grounded upon the foundation. So you can't argue for the foundation from something that's resting upon it. But the reason why I brought this up is because I thought Mark, I think Mark, I, let me say this is I think this is we could sort of cut to the end to say I think if if Tara Smith system is representative of Ayn Rand's system, which probably is, um, is to say that the kind of ethics they're presenting are, are one in which if you choose life, then these are the kinds of things, if you use reason rightly, these are the kinds of things that will lead to the promotion of life, right? If you choose it. If you don't choose it, it's meaningless to you. It will do you no good because you have a different goal, right? If your goal is to live, then these are the things that you must do. And my issue with that is, and, and I mean, one of the things I admired about Ayn Rand when I read her, her work on this subject is that she can't stand the idea of an ethical system which isn't grounded in some fact of reality, that, you know, a system that hangs there, that's arbitrary, it's based upon arbitrary choice, 
you know, or subject of subjective postulate. She says, you know, she can't stand an ethical system that's based upon a whim. Like God. Right? Like God. Well, life, if, life. if you do an internal critique, I'm doing an internal critique. I'm taking her assumptions at face value and saying they're true. And then saying, how does it work as a system itself? As a theory of reality, right? How does it apply to reality? That's what I'm doing. You can do the same thing with Christianity in which you can take its assumptions and say, as a theory, how does it relate to reality? That's all I'm doing. Now, you, you, by when you reject God's existence, well, yes, then the whole system is arbitrary, becomes totally subjective. Agreed. All I'm saying is, is I'm doing an internal critique. What I'm wondering is, and, and it may not be a critique, I guess. I'm just trying to state what it says and then what the ramifications are of it. If, you're, if you want to say that if you choose life, then these are the things that you must do, then it seems to me it's more of a system of prudential values than it is moral values. And I, and I question whether or not objectivity in terms of it being mind independent is a legitimate thing to say. That, it, that this isn't, it, to me, it becomes not really a form of moral realism but it does collapse into subjectivism at that point without that foundation. Absolutely not. If you look at the seven, seven pillars or virtues of objectivism, they're all epistemological in nature, and they're all about your relationship to reality, honesty, integrity, productivity, reason. These are the virtues that, that will enable you to live because to an objectivist, life is an absolute and death is an absolute. For you, you make the assertion that it isn't an absolute. We say it is because it, by all, by all accounts, by all evidence of my senses, it appears to be an absolute. And as a living being that has no innate knowledge or instincts, I have to find the values that I need to pursue to promote this absolute that I call life. And there's nothing arbitrary or subjective about the virtues, the values that I might pursue myself, for example, productivity. I decide to be a writer and write books or tracks, uh, or I decide to be an inventor and invent computers, or I decide to be an architect, or I decide to be an artist. Those are all contextual, not arbitrary, not subjective, but contextual. And I'm still pursuing them with the object of the absolute of my life and happiness. But you're deciding to choose them because they're a value to you. That's what's meant by subjective. That's what I'm saying. Is you're choosing? No, they're a value to life. So let's let's but go I back know, to your pillar. Life? That's what I'm saying. Right. Why so life? I, that's right. And I I just want to because we we blew past this when Mark brought it up. That choice between existence and non-existence, life and would you agree? Let's start with this. Would you characterize the choice between life and non-life as exhaustive of the possibilities? No. Okay, well, what's because what, we're not talking about life. It and seems like definitionally it would be. What what's well, no, what's, what are some non-life? We're talking are, about okay. it's an ethical system. You're talking about what the supreme good is, and so I what don't is that, think what does supreme good mean? I don't it, know what that it, means. It is as Aristotle said. It is the thing to be pursued. It's it's what gives structure to a virtue ethic system. There is one supreme good that man is to aim at. Right. And that good then serves as the foundation for everything else. It says, okay, that's a supreme good. Right. That's sure. The goal I, I get that. That gives direction. So all I'm saying is, I don't think the only two choices are that the supreme good or the goal of man is life or non life. Because it could be, you know, the supreme goal of man is the, you know, the, the existence of a barnyard full of pigs or a swarm oh. of mosquitoes. Oh, I see. So, so okay. 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 So, uh, <laughs> 
All right. So he, thank you. I understand here, better now. By the way, here I think one of the <laughs> existence of life as a rational being, which has an entire universe of, of uh, yes. Anyway, yeah. Uh, so I, I, no, I, I would just say um, you're the the reason I think you're seeing no foundation there in the sense that you're using the word foundation, um, and I while we're maybe talking over each other is. There is no foundation in that sense, um, because Rand would not start with, and I wouldn't either, and I don't even call myself an objectivist, although I'm pretty close, uh, but Mark wouldn't call me an objectivist either, that's fine. Uh, so, but- I called you in, that, was so I There's wrong? a lot of sectarianism in the- uh, it's, it's fine, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's not a church. That's why actually I don't, that's the reason I don't like the label, because it's not a church. Um, but, uh, she would not start with, I don't think, well, I know, she wouldn't start with the question of what outside thing provides the standard for our life, for, or for, not for our life, for our ethical system. What, what, what is the, she wouldn't say, well, is it, maybe it's to make pigs, maybe it's to do this, but like, she wouldn't start with that. She would start with, here we are, here we are, and we have to start with a very fundamental choice. We, we, and reality forces that choice upon us, whether we want to or not, and that is existence or non-existence. Do I want to live or do I not want to live? The, they, that choice is foisted upon you by metaphysical reality, and there is no need to ask what's that choice based on. It but doesn't it's, it's matter. Assu that's assuming that human beings are the ultimate standard, is what it's doing. It's saying, okay, I have a choice. I got to choose between these. And, and so it's, it's assuming a point of view of human beings as, as being the ethic, right? Because as I said, it of course, be, of it, course, but why? Yes, Based, yes, of course reason? it is, because there is no reason? other choice that's non-arbitrary. Yeah, because how, here you are you, on earth yeah. as a human, and you need to ask yourself introspectively how, sh how I live my life. And I, the first question you have to ask is, do I want to live my life or not? Like, do I want to do anything at all? Or do I want to cease to exist? That's a fundamental choice that you have. You can't yeah. start by saying, well, what are the other things that I could be? What, are, what could my other end goals be? All of those end goals, this is why Mark's arguing is axiomatic. All of those end goals presuppose that you live to do those end goals. You must live to do anything you want. Life yeah. must be the first choice you make. But, but it's but, the, but the end. We're not it. talking about the end goals. We're talking about the end for human beings. The end for human beings could be the flourishing not of human beings, but of, as I said, a swarm Whose of end? mosquitoes. Whose end? I don't understand what that means. What's the, what's the, the end, end for human, human beings? Be, the way virtue ethics works, and Rand says this in her work, the, the goal, the purpose, the end of man is, is not subjective, supposedly, right? It's not I get to choose, which is, as I said, what we're facing. It's I get to choose what's best for me. I get to choose just my identity with meaning and purpose and value. And I don't have, I can ignore everything that's outside of me. This is not true. The, are, you, the, are, are you trying to say this is objectivism? No, no, no. I'm saying that's the present problem. The crisis we have is that people have chosen that view, have right. said a purely subjective view and turned it inside. But virtue ethics going back to Aristotle is this idea that no, there is a telos that is intrinsic to the being itself. There is an end to which he was, in my sense, created or evolved or whatever you want to say, but it's intrinsic to the being itself. What I'm saying is that end, that goal, that good, isn't necessarily human flourishing or it isn't necessarily human life. Your end goal literally could be 
uh, to you know to make sure that that the bees uh, are thriving and right. that they live and you spend your whole life working towards uh, that right. goal. Right. You're, you're talking about look, my whole life could be painting perfect paintings, but that's still contributing to my life as a thriving being, to my happiness. To that to that there's more than uh, there's more than bread that makes a man. I don't think Bradley's happy. arguing it's happiness. I, I correct me if I'm wrong, Bradley, but I think your argument is human uh, let me just step back and and I'll use it more in the Hegelian sense. Humans are pawns in some universe's game, and the universe's game, there's a game in this universe, and it has a goal, and that goal is pig farms, and humans are, are <laughs> tools to make pig farms, and that's, that's your fucking goal, humans. Go. Is that, is that the no, thing that no, we're looking for? No, all I'm, I'm just giving examples to try to demonstrate that even if you say, well, when you begin, you either have a choice between life or death, if we're talking about the end goal, what, what you know, what we are for, what we're supposed to be doing, right? It, it's, it's not tied to just life or death. That's not the ultimate What is supposed value. to mean in that context? Without the context of human life, what does the word supposed to mean? Well, ask, ask Rand. I mean, this is her yeah, view. Yeah, she yeah. takes it from Aristotle. No, no, she would say that this depends is... on the choice of life. If you choose death, yeah. you don't you have to worry about the word supposed to. Right. Well, it doesn't ask, exist. Ask Tara Smith. I think life is axiomatic, but I think the person's moral purpose is the achievement of well, their happiness. And they, yeah. they pursue values to achieve their happiness, which is an aspect of life. The axiomatic I'm, I'm going to jump yeah. in. I have to get this question in because it may be a dumb question, but... If life is axiomatic, why there are people that choose suicide every day. There are people that make that choice that life itself is not worth. It's axiomatic axiomatic for the achievement of value. It's axiomatic for the achievement of reason. Those people don't need philosophy, Carrie. They're dead. Yeah. It's axiomatic for human life. Wait, I I mean, like, don't laugh at me. I don't understand what you're saying. I'm just trying to get better clarification. Well, let me see if we can cut to the end. I mean, you you can't laugh at me, but. (laughs) But would you guys say then, if for those who, like Tara Smith says, for those who choose life, then this is the path that will lead to that being a reality. So if I choose death, these have nothing to do with me at all. They, you know, they, these aren't objectively true for me because I've chosen a different goal. But it, well, so it's, objectively it's objective true. in the sense that if I choose life, then right. these are the things I should follow. Is that right? It's also objectively true. If you don't follow those things, you will probably die. Right. Or but I'm saying the system of ethics that's created in Rand's system is a system of ethics that are designed to lead to you living, being alive, your existence. And so if I say that's not my goal then those things don't apply to me at all, right? Yes, and I would say two things happen. If you say that's m- not my goal, two things mm-hmm. happen. One, they don't apply to you, and two, we don't have to listen to you anymore because everyone else here has a goal of living. But see, that's my issue, is that if it's at its ground, an arbitrary choice like that, then why would I have to listen to you? Why is that arbitrary? Why? Because, wh- because I've decided to do something differently. Like I said, I don't think the two choices Go ahead. are for death. Your but truth. that's what I'm saying. But you can't you can't then criticize me and say it's unethical because you've chosen no, one. No, if you go out and I've tell chosen people, a different one. No, may, I can't. I can't. No, if you go out and tell people the way to death is to follow my religion or whatever, my system. I won't say it's religion. The way to death is to do the things that I've said because death is my goal. I guess you could do that. You would be postponing the achievement of your goal the longer you had those conversations and did the work to, to profligate a bit. Absolutism of life by, by, 
by our ethical system making the assertion, which I think it backs up by observation, that particular actions lead to a, a good life and ignoring those, which means ignoring your nature, ignoring your, the requirements of your nature within reality will lead to the opposite. And you still are holding life as the absolute because life what I'm only matters is to choice. It only matters to someone who values. It only matters to somebody who's pursuing virtues. If I choose a different ultimate end, right, a, a, a good that I'm going to chase besides, you know, making it the ultimate end, making human existence my ultimate end or my own existence, if I choose something else and whatever I choose, um, then in order to achieve that thing, maybe my ultimate good is mass death for as many people as possible to die, right? And so then I go around committing- Like the all Columbine these, people. Like, like yeah. Stalin. Yeah, like Stalin. So I just want, I, you know, I mean, there was some other ultimate good, but so I just go around and killing people. From your system, because he hasn't chosen your ground, he's chosen a different one, you can't say really that that's immoral. All you can say, you can't even say that he chose poorly. Because yes. this decision is pre-rational. What no, gives reason its value yes, is that's can. resting on the ground of this ultimate value, which is life. So you can't even say he's irrational. He's chosen immorally. Or, or immoral. Immoral because he's rejecting life uh, and rejecting. Well, that's what I'm saying. That's this is an arbitrary choice. You're choosing life. I'm choosing something else. He's, he's rejecting it in favor of embracing uh, and bringing death to other people who have not, uh, who aren't on his page, who don't have the same point of view as him. And and he's uh, and and to me, that that choice is a fundamental. It's an absolute. You're claiming there's got to be something underneath it that girds it. That actually is quite arbitrary. It's, you're the one who's made the arbitrary assertion about God. Because I don't see or I've never experienced God, but I do know life, and I do see things around me that are alive, and I do see how they have to act according to their natures in order to thrive, and I do see that human beings need a whole set of rules. To understand what kinds of what kinds of actions they have to take in order to survive, like on other animals who have instinctual knowledge don't have to do. Uh, but still, my goal is to live. My goal is to live, and the fact that the essential issue in 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 morality is choice. Without it, we're amoral beings. If God is commanding us to do it, and we just follow. We're just amoral beings. We're moral because we have the choice between the absolute of life and death. Can I, yeah, I just want to say one thing. I'm very excited because, look, I think the purpose of any conversation, I, I like what Jordan Peterson says about it, it's to articulate yourself as clearly as you can so the other person <laughs> understands what you're saying and doesn't misunderstand it, and then to try and, and ask the right questions to understand the person better. So as a fly on the wall for most of this conversation, I think I understand what we're talking about. <laughs> which makes that's, me very happy. That's good. And I think, <laughs> I think what we're talking about is that uh, what tree, okay, so what tree surgeon just said in the chat is, if life is the base value, of course deprivation of it is immoral. If, okay, so yes, ba based true. on that chat, okay, so I think what Bradley is saying, correct me if I'm wrong, is, is, is you're saying, but if, if, a, if the, there, because there are people who reject life, that, they are also rejecting that system, and they're saying they're saying it's not the base value, that it's I'm not self-evident. It's not self-evident, right? Yes, anyone. There are anyone who speaks yeah. about a moral thing and makes a moral judgment, 
if Bradley says Stalin's wrong and Mark says Stalin is wrong, they both think, I assume you both think Stalin was immoral. All right. So <laughs> Stalin was immoral. You both make that. You're both speaking from the context of your own ethical system, right? There's no, there is no other thing that you can appeal to that's outside of your ethical system. Now, Bradley will argue that, I just want to clarify, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. Bradley will argue that his ethical system has an objective foundation because I, I assume there's a religious objective foundation on the ethics that you're yeah, using the word objective. I wouldn't, but you would. Yeah, essential right. nature. Right. That right. And you would good. say. He's the standard. Yeah. Right. Right. So he was, he's the standard. And Mark would say, well, that standard is arbitrary. Um, and I could make up a Zeus standard or a anything else standard. And therefore, that's an arbitrary standard. My standard is life. And Stalin's wrong because. I assume that other people that I'm speaking to would like to choose life. And if you would like to choose, if you want to choose death, feel free to join Stalin, <laughs> right? So, but if the standard is life, it's a bad idea. And I think implicit in every moral judgment that a rational, um, I'll say objectivist in, in quotes here, but a, a, a person starting with that ethic, everything that they say is contextualized with assuming you want to live and everything you say is contextualized with assuming you want to please God. I think I understand yeah. what we're talking about and I'm very happy about that. And it's, I, I don't know, we don't have to reach some agreement on this today. Well, we can talk I, about something can else. I, can I bring it back to something a little bit less <laughs> sure, academic sure. just for, for people who like in, in the world we're living in today, can I bring it back to given that we can't agree on what, the supreme good is, or even if there is a supreme good, right? Can we still be effective allies in fighting <laughs> evil ideology that says that we don't get to make uh, our own decisions? We don't get to have individual sovereignty. Can we not be joined in that battle? Because I think we can be. I well, so can I? But I want to comment on this because yeah. because you and I talked about this earlier. Uh, where we are in alignment is, I think, if you're going to get to individual sovereignty as an ethical uh, or even political standard, I think we can be in alignment from there on out pretty well. Um, and when we're talking about political and cultural change, and I think that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I realized um, when, when I, I made the statement, I think it was yesterday, that like Christianity doesn't have the, the something, I'm paraphrasing myself, but Christianity doesn't have the philosophic foundations in order to oppose wokeism, right? And someone responded, well, it helped me. Like I got out of wokeism because of Christianity. And I, I would like to clarify, any non-woke belief system can help an individual leave wokeism. That's clear. I mean, uh, a belief, like a belief in Zoroastrianism that's not woke would get you out of wokeism. That is true. The question I'm asking is long-term, if the consequences, the logical consequences of the entire system are followed and we look at the system as a whole, Christianity, and I'm using it very broadly in this sense, and we can narrow it down, but broadly when you use the sense of Christianity and we say that it doesn't have the tools by which wokeism can be opposed long term and the reason and the evidence i'll cite without getting into the reasons for it we can if you guys want but the evidence i'll cite is fundamentally christianity is based on a book which is intentionally well i don't know intentionally it's certainly has va vagaries contradictions poetry and there have been poetry. and continue to be lots of contrary interpretations 
of that book. Lots of them. And some of them in the Southern Baptist Convention think that woke is totally fine with that book and they have (laughs) no defense against woke. Now, Bradley says, no, we have a strong defense against woke. And my argument would be- I'm a real Christian. They're not real Christians. (laughs) Right, so they would all say that, right? So my argument would be, if you are, without getting into, obviously I'm not a Christian, I don't think Christianity will work long-term, but if you are a Christian and you want to argue against woke, I don't think you can say Christianity is sufficient. You must say Christianity plus this particular interpretation of the scripture, that's what's sufficient. You can't just say the Bible will fix you because clearly the Bible will not. You need to interpret it in some other way. And my question that I would challenge you then is, what standards What standards are you using by which you interpret the, the Bible and how do you get there? And, like, and to the extent that culture, we, we win this war like, and we can then have this argument later as, hey, we're all about individual sovereignty, but Mark and Carter don't think that your system will perpetuate it for a long term, and you think our system won't perpetuate it for long, and we can we can argue that point. But we are aligned, at least at the political, I view the, uh, if we use Bradley's analogy, like the foundation and things built, built upon it, right? There's a fire, in the, the building's on fire, and we're yeah. kind of working our way down to the foundation, and like, we're both on the same story, and we have the same, we hate the fire here, and we're going to get to a point where we disagree about whether the building's on fire or not as we work our way down. I would agree with, with that last part for sure. Yep. You don't or you do? I agree with the last thing that he just said. I mean, yeah. obviously stuff that he said about the Bible and the interpretations and all that, although there have been many interpretations. But um, I mean, I think, you know, I have a totally different view of the Bible. So it's kind of, it's one of those conversations where our worldviews are different. And so it's, you know, I don't know how productive of a conversation would be. Well, do you, actually, I'm curious. Would you would you would you argue with the characterization that it's contradictory and ambiguous and needs to be interpreted? I think rightly understood. If you look at the genres, that I mean, the Bible is not one book; it's an anthology of books, right? It's 66 books that are written over a long period of time in many different genres. There are poetry. Now, you objected to it having poetry, just the fact that it's got poetry. No, I like poetry. No, poetry is great, but that's part of the Bible. No, no, no. Poetry is great, but it's not. It's not clear. I mean, poetry is well, beautiful, but it's not yes. clear. And if we're going to talk about an ethical yes. system, it ought to be very crystal clear. I'm with you. Uh, so 100%. So most of what you find in the Bible, at least if if you're a Christian and the New Testament is the lens through which you read the Old Testament, then the Old Testament is not, we don't throw it away. We're not Marcionites. But, you know, it, it's there for our instruction and there are things and principles to learn there. But if what you find primarily find in the New Testament it's a very, these are very occasion documents. They're written to particular people at a particular time for a particular reason. So you see some very specific advice, but mostly what you find are either principles or you're drawing principles out of what is already very specific advice. So you walk away with a set of principles. Now, here's one, it's interesting, Clay Rutledge, one of the arguments he makes for traditional religion like Christianity versus a pseudo kind of religion is that the benefit of Christianity in one sense, and you guys will probably totally deny it, you know, disregard this because you have a different view of history. But one benefit is, is that it does have 2000 years of cultivated wisdom, which is to say that it, with regards to, I mean, not just interpretation, like, and I think there has been real refinement in interpretation, like how the Bible is interpreted in the Protestant Reformation, I think is better than in the late medieval period during the nominalists or whatever. I think there has been improvement in understanding of these Texts. I mean, they're ancient texts. As I said, they're in various genres, but it has 2000 years of cultivated wisdom, which is to say 
taking the essential ethical system, the essentials, which, which Christians, Catholics, I mean, a, a lot of Christians would agree upon, and applying those to reality, applying them to the building of the, of the state, right, or the structuring of society and all that stuff, you've got 2,000 years of trial and error working that out. One downside, and maybe this is more a critique of the woke religion, and you guys say we don't need it at all, but one critique of the woke religion as, as far as a religion moving forward as a substitute for religion is that, you know, it's, it's new. And so what it does is to, in try to you know, try to reach ascendancy is it trashes everything that has come before, right? So it can give itself some credibility. And so anything that wasn't said or done 15 minutes ago is abominated, right? But it severs itself from all of that tradition and says it's all wrong, you know, worthless. And it lives in this sort of hyper-present moment. And the thing is, is if it does get to the point where it becomes the dominant view in culture all around, I mean, we, we saw an example today in the judicial system, judicial system where the old system of the rule of law held, right? When we all thought it right. wouldn't. But if it's dominant, right, then it's like, it's gonna have to work its, its system out, right? And so it's gonna be huge amounts of trial and error and all this stuff, and it lacks the other problem is, of course, it lacks a, a broad vision. So, um, boy, I got off on the woke thing, and I don't remember the original question, Carter. I, I think sorry. your point, which I think I'm actually going to agree with your point. So let me, or yeah. part, partly at least, okay. if not. So I would, Mark may disagree with me here, but I would argue that if we look at major religions like Judaism and Christianity that have survived for a long time, especially religions that have survived um, and been part of uh, Western um, success, right. Uh, I think in order for them to survive in the West, they must necessarily have gotten some things right. Uh, I still think I still disagree with uh, the ethical foundation of altruism and a whole bunch of other stuff. Like I disagree with a lot of it. Let's talk about that because that I don't think that's well. Christian. Put that aside for just a moment. Yeah. But like I, I would say, they still got a bunch of things wrong. Um, yeah. But they could not have survived being. So when I say getting things right. I mean correspondence to reality. If right. if your religion teaches something that's so disjointed from reality that one can't survive at all, then that religion won't survive. So I, right. Christianity must necessarily have gotten some overlap. The Venn diagrams can't be completely separated. There's got to be overlap there enough that Christianity and Judaism and any of the world's major religions that have survived for a long period of time get something, they get enough right that it can perpetuate itself. Yes, and I don't think that should be thrown out without asking what do they get right, and I, I think that's a I think that's a uh, legitimate thing to ask. What do they get right, both uh, maybe in in moral conclusions, or and or psychological needs that are filled? Or we're like that's an interesting question, and you know I don't I don't I wouldn't throw it out, um, in the sense that the Wokies would throw it out, right? Mike, Mark, Mark, Mark might disagree. I, I would. I, I still am an atheist, but that's my... No, it wasn't enough to convince you? To the degree that religion has come into the uh, 19th and 20th and 21st centuries and, and brought some form of um, reasoning with it, a, reason, a structure of reason, uh, a philosophical orientation, uh, an attempt to prove and or disprove, they're miles and miles above the um, skeptics the radical skeptics of right. the world generation um, because they do look to the outside world as a thing that exists and and it's up to us as human beings to sort of get it figure it out 
Well, we could. I mean, the conversation we just had on the on the grounds of ethics, right? You couldn't have that conversation, right? It's just right. like I do whatever I feel. So that whole conversation we just had, and we could continue the conversation for hours and hours and hours and make progress, right? Not just go back and forth, my view, you view, but there's the potential for progress is, I mean, is wholly different than, than what we're seeing. Now, that's why I said what I said in the beginning. This is a rebellion against reality. And it's, I, sure. I mean, I, you know, the, it's obviously it happens in history where you see it, 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 it you know, in scripture, it's it's the truth that's being communicated in Genesis three, right? The rebellion, where the, it's the snake rebelling against the the natural order. I mean, this is sort of the 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 ultimate the ultimate sin is the rebel against the sacred and the natural order, and it always brings calamity. Can we talk about natural order for just a second? Because you're reminding me of the 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 women that you mentioned earlier that made I didn't I haven't seen the libs of TikTok video with women that are cats or the whatever. cat women but, right oh, yeah. but but you you mentioned about that going uh against the natural order and and i don't really like the phrase against natural order because i don't really know what that means but i i will i do like reality correspondence as a concept obviously um and so when i look at someone like that um i don't actually necessarily i mean i haven't seen this particular person so i don't know what they're saying but <laughs> based on what you're saying um uh, i don't i don't it's okay no, I actually don't judge them in the in the sense that they're free to do that. I I I'm suspicious that it won't lead to the happiness that they claim. I mean, I don't know. Maybe they got a brain tumor somewhere going on, and that's going to make them the most filled fulfilled they could possibly be. Um, but I'm I'm not. I wouldn't say you ought not do that for some uh, intrinsic universe reason, where the universe doesn't want you to to look like a cat and meow like. I don't think that's a good way to be fulfilled in life. It'll probably fail. Uh, I could make arguments of why it would fail. I'd have to know that person and their psychology and if they were suffering from a brain tumor to really know like what's best for them at all. I don't know, but I, I wouldn't, it's well, that, what, what doesn't, well, I just want to say that, that that choice doesn't bother me. What bothers me is their assertion to foist it on everyone else and treat it as normal and force you to accept that this is completely uh, normal and should be praised and is good. That's that's where I have a problem. Yeah, like so I use them as an uh, force on children. I so I just use them as examples. I saw them this morning, and that's what came to mind. But it makes me think of Carter back when we talked about at the very beginning of when we started on Safe Space. So I don't know, two or three years ago, when uh, during some of the documents that came out in in the James Damore debacle at Google it was revealed from internal documents that they had had presentations for their Google employees where they had an employee there at Google do a presentation about identity and about this particular person identified as a large empty room and as a, a multicolored dragon. <laughs> and that's real. That happened. And they, and they were doing a, a, a presentation on, on um, what used to be called multiple, multiple personality disorder, but now they call it, um, dissociative identity disorder. And so that was taken as something normal and courageous and, and sort of what you're saying is, you know, it's, it's a prestigious company and we're, you're supposed to sit there in that room and learn about how this is a valid identity and it corresponds to reality. And yes, it's perfectly normal to, to have as your identity, a large empty room. Right. And she actually is a large empty room. And if you say she's not, you're wrong. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
and forcing yeah. you to interact with that person in that way. I'm right? assuming it was a she. I don't know. Maybe it, I, what's the pronoun for a large empty room? I don't know. I can, I can guess what the glasses and the hair look like. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yes, me too. There's a question here I think should be answered by um, particularly um, our Christian friends here. It says a Christian friend of mine once asserted that the fundamental original sin is the pursuit of self-preservation. Agree? Disagree? Elaborate. Oh, that's interesting. The original sin is the pursuit of self-preservation. I would disagree with that. Um, there's actually many ways to conceive of the original sin. Um, my favorite way of doing it, which doesn't necessarily mean it's right, but I think th that's sort of highly symbolic language. Uh, there's many truths that you can draw out of it. Um, but my understanding, or one of the ways I, I understand it, because it, it can be viewed just in a very plain sense of just rebellion, rebellion against the, the commands of God. And, and really what, what the serpent tempts her with is you can become like God. So there is this, this sort of um, promise of, uh, I might, you, you might say that this sort of promise of personal autonomy in the sense of absolute autonomy, the kind of idea of absolute negative freedom, which is the freedom from all restriction, which is, you know, Sometimes when I go to these, because I've spoken at some of these uh, pro-liberty rallies, and, and you have people get up there and they talk and they talk as if, you know, the ultimate end of man is freedom from all restrictions, as if all restrictions and all constraints are always wrong and they're always tyrannical, and that man is at his best when he's set free from all restrictions, which of course is absurd. You, and I mean, you're talking about, you're saying they're including, I just want to clarify, when they yeah. say that, you're saying they're including restrictions that reality imposes on how reality works. Yeah, or or you may impose them on yourself, in or, and this is reality doing it too, but you know, if I want to be a concert pianist, right, I'm going to have to give up many lesser goods, right, many lesser freedoms in order to obtain the greater good, the greater freedom. Yes. I mean, that's the way every ethical system works, right? It, you, you sacrifice the lesser thing in order to get the greater thing. And, and, the, and the cardinal sin is when you give up the greater thing in, in order to receive the lesser thing. And, which, which I mean, by the way, objectivists would call a sacrifice. They don't, they don't call a sacrifice giving up something of lesser value for greater value. That's yeah. pursuing your interests and that's pursuing your value as a human yeah. being. It's, it's when you give up the greater value for the lesser value. I'm not going to practice piano tonight, even though I want to be a uh, a concert pianist, I'm going to go to this party and drink myself into a blip. That's right. That's right. I, and I'm with you 100% because I think about it from a biblical point of view, what is idolatry at the end of the day? Idolatry is exchanging the greatest good for a lesser good, right? Instead of worshiping God who is worthy of that worship, the supreme being, it's choosing instead to worship something that's less. So at the heart of, you know, the disease in, in, in the biblical thinking is idolatry. And sin is just the symptom of that disease, right? It's what comes after you exchange the greatest good for a lesser good. So Christianity, and maybe we want to talk about altruism. We want to talk about that because I, yeah, I, I was I'm surprised kind of you pushed back that. on the altruist. No, oh I, I actually am curious because a lot of Christians. This is again, by the way, this is yeah. underscoring my argument that it needs to be Christianity as a concept plus a particular interpretation. But a yeah. lot of Christians will argue. Yeah. Uh, from the altruist ethic, and even even I, I mean, I've read the Bible uh, a lot. Even I, I see, I I actually, I see where they get it. I see where it comes from. And, yeah. 
in in the Bible. Um, and so I'd like to hear how you reject the altruist ethic as a Christian. Right. So I, I think if you proof text the Bible, if you take one passage you know, out of context and you don't read the entire context, it can appear that way when it talks about self-denial and, and things like that. But, well, and giving, uh, giving, you know, giving everything to the poor and blah, blah, blah. And like, it looks yeah. a lot like altruism. Yeah. I mean, and, and actually the symbology yeah. of sacrificing the greater good, which was God yeah. for the petty humans uh, as the sacrifice of Jesus is kind of the, the ultimate altruistic symbol. Uh, well, I think altruism, if, if we're talking about the Compte version of altruism says that the motivation that drives you is it's sacrifice for the sake of sacrifice. It's not sacrifice for the sake of some greater good. Right. And so, um, in other words, it's a, it's the motivation that drives sacrifice is towards some negation of value rather than some positive value. And so it, the essence of the cross, the, the text to go to, the paradigmatic text to, that, that helps us discern with the New Testament's teaching on this is, is Hebrews chapter 12, which says that Jesus despises shame. It's talking about the motivation, how Jesus was able to endure this horrific death. And it says that... Um, he was able to despise or despising the shame, right? Not reveling in the shame, you know, but despising the shame, he was able to endure the cross for the joy that was set before him, right? And that joy is not just, oh, I'm, you know, this is not death for Christ where it's death forever. You're done, and, you know, and that's the end of it. He died, and here's God who's dead. This is, he dies as a human being. He suffers in that way, and then he's raised from the dead, exalted back to glory, right? He, he lowers himself to the point of death, not just for the sake of death and loss and, and revel in it and how awesome is that, but he does so so that he can be exalted to glory and so that all others who sin can also have that benefit uh, that comes from that death, the joy that is set before him. So as I said, what altruism- You're saying it's not sacrifice for sacrifice sake, it's sacrifice- That's a Kantian, you're using the Kantian phrasing of that. It's like Kantian duty. Is that what you're comparing yeah, I, it to? I reject the Kantian duty 100%. And I think Rand was, was she a would prophet. Hate it too. Yeah, she's a prophet in a sense, because in the 20th century, the Kantian ethic had worked its way into Christianity and in the West, yeah. you know, in, into our understanding of ethics. And people really- you know, believe that that was the case. If you back up a little bit, you know, you get the Jonathan Edwards and others, you don't see it at all. But she was saying, you know, this is this is an abomination, this this notion of, of sacrifice. And, and I don't know, I've heard some things she say, I've heard her say some things that seem to indicate that she knows this isn't historical Christianity, but that this Christianity has, has subjected itself to Kantianism and the real villain in this is Kant. And he's the one that we need to, uh, opposed. Uh, I would I would yeah. agree with that. By the way, just based on my knowledge of her, and I'm not a Rand expert either, but I think yeah. she would, she, she would forgive uh, a lot of things that she would call mystical belief systems at their origins a lot more because there was not a lot of. She would argue it would be difficult to make inductive rational conclusions about causes based on how little we knew about things, and so she's much more forgiving of uh, mystical belief systems at their origins. Um, and by the time you get to Kant, who is, you know, modern in that sense, uh, she just views what he is doing as like Kant, Kant is probably her devil, 
right? She views right. it Kant yeah, like so. Kant is the guy yeah. who who gets it all and intentionally wants to destroy all the good that's happened, and he, I, here's how he's going to do. it. That on some you know really base level when <laughs> right. I read her because she does she just despises that stuff, and I and I actually despise it too. But you know, a contemporary of Rand's is C.S. Lewis, and C.S. Right. Lewis also was pushing back against this, and there has been a real revival, a real renaissance in conservative Christian circles, going back to Edwards and these, in, you know, and, and Augustine and others, and moving away from the, the Kantian influence. But he talks about the unblushing language of reward that you find in the Bible, especially in the Gospels. Jesus time and again says, you know, he talks about the rewards for our obedience, the goods that we will have, like in Matthew 19, where he says, those of you who will lose family members or you know, lose lands or all these things that you might lose, you will be rewarded a hundredfold. So, you know, you can reject heaven and say, well, that's ridiculous because there is no heaven or whatever. But if you're just talking about the system itself and the way that Comte defines altruism and the way Kant understands it and understands the concept of it, I don't think it's found in Christianity at all. The sacrifice is never for the sake of sacrifice. In, in other I, words, oh, yeah, go ahead. I'm going to make a real world example. So yeah. Carter and I both gave up certain things to do this show and we've talked about it before when i talk when i talk about people on the left being afraid of losing things or maybe it maybe it's an inaccurate word but sacrificing things in order to speak truth and try and, and be an honest person okay right. so you might lose your job you might lose your friend circle you might lose your social status you might lose your income you could lose your safety of your family right but right. you're going to lose friends, people you think of as friends. But that's not, it's not sacrifice for sacrifice sake. It's sacrifice for a, you're, for a blessing, for the joy of what comes. You're, you're sacrificing these things. Or the, the example Mark gave before, or you gave before about, about uh, playing piano. You're sacrificing these things and you're getting something greater in the end. So any friend I lost as a result of, doing anything that scared me yeah. and trying to, to find and speak truth. Any friend I lost, I've been, it's, they've been replaced by much better friends who are, we have something so much more meaningful to the foundation of our friendship. And the same right. thing for, I don't know, like anything, Car I mean, Carter, would you agree that, am I getting this right? That that's not, that's not the yeah. definition. That's not co the Kantian I mean, definition of sacrifice. Well, then, so, right? so, so I would, so I think we're sorry. conflating the Kantian definition of duty with. There's another sense in which Rand talked about altruism, and Bradley, I don't know. Uh, I don't think this is what you're meaning, but maybe we should tease it out, right? Okay. There's the Kantian duty, which is uh, if you get any pleasure of, from it at all, it was not yeah. moral. Like you, yeah. you basically, yeah. you, you have to sacrifice for the zero. Um, okay, which, all you know, self-interest. Yeah. Right, which is which is so obviously uh, anti-human and evil and destructive. It's like it blows my mind that he's taken seriously. I, I, but I don't even think it's possible. I don't think it's possible because, no. as I said, I think we're geared towards some goal, some good, right? As Aristotle said. So I think it's actually impossible, and it's masochistic, right? It's essentially yes. saying revel in, in your own suffering. It it, yeah. it is, and but but it might not be even psychologically possible because you might get hedonic adaptation or hedonic reversal after a while, and then you start to gain pleasure from being dutiful. Yeah, I don't I guess know. That's true. Uh, yeah. But yeah. um uh yeah. and then you but there's a sense, it out. Yeah. Right. There, there's an altru there's a sense of uh and the word word altruism is used not to not in the sense of the Kantian duty sacrifice for nothing, but in the sense that um 
you should sacrifice for others, that others are a greater value than yourself. Um, right. And often that's what Rand was talking about when she talked about altruism. And I don't know if that's what you're talking about or not, but that, that you know, you do see a lot of Christians that conflate, or I won't say, I don't want to accuse them of conflating it because it's not a conflation for them, but they will, they will say, well, uh, the Bible encourages you to do, be benevolent, therefore you have a moral obligation to sacrifice yourself for the other people, and that's altruism. Right. And that, I, uh, it, Jesus abominates that because that's what the scribes and Pharisees, that was sort of their attitude, right? It, and I can give some specific examples if you want, want them, but just generally to say that when we give to someone, right, when we act in charitable ways, it is to be a free will offering, right? This is something I'm freely choosing to do. If someone were to force me to do it, you know, if the church was to force me to do it, then it loses its whole value because I should be wanting to do this, right? I see people who are suffering and I move with compassion for them and I want to alleviate that suffering, which by the way, actually brings me more joy, right? I mean, that's one of the teachings of Jesus is that it's more blessed to give than to receive. Now you could reduce that to, it's better always to give than to receive and, and think of it in an absolute sense, which is not how these kinds of principles work, right? It's it, This is a general truth that he's giving that, um, it, maybe I'll use an example. Um, you know, Christmas is coming up and I got five kids, right? So Christmas for us is gigantic, right? And, and this is an example of which is better for you, right? It could be that maybe the tradition was I just buy stuff for myself for Christmas. Those wouldn't be gifts because I've earned the money and I'm just buying with the things that I like with it. Um, although in a Christian frame of mind, every good and perfect gift comes from above. So I'm grateful <laughs> for these things as well because I know that God has blessed me with certain gifts and opportunities and all these all these things. He, God brings the increase, right? Um, but still, I, it, the tradition could be I just buy some stuff for myself, right? And that would create joy in me and I like stuff and I usually buy myself something for Christmas <laughs> versus this system where I take from my, the, my abundance, the stuff that I have, and I bless my children with it because when I give it to them, I create joy in them, which is to say, and, and to me, that's way more satisfying. It's like there's something about the nature of joy that it increases when it's shared with someone else, right? And if if it's just hoarded to oneself, like an Ebenezer kind of thing, then the joy can die. It's like there's part well, of but you're conflating to... benevolence with altruism again. Like, and and I would let's throw out. Yeah. Let's throw yeah. out the kids' Christmas presents because when when yeah. there are people that there that you know and love that are in your life, like there's there's a lot more selfish incentive to be doing okay. things for them. But sure. let's let's talk so, about the the yeah. guy the the homeless guy on the street that you've never or the met. the enemy? How about my enemy? Because that's the radical sure. thing that Jesus says. It's not that radical to say, hey, you should take care of strangers. I mean, that's Judaism is grounded in that, and and as a society, you had to take care of strangers because you wouldn't be able to go anywhere if people weren't willing to give you a, a place to stay and give you food and all that. It's not like you could, traveling would be precarious. So, but Jesus goes to the radical side that says, no, you actually should love your enemies and do good to your enemies and bless them, right? Even even when they curse you. Those commands have to be put into the context of the overall mission. What's the overall mission? I'm not just, I'm not rewarding that person for their vice, right? I'm rewarding them in spite of their vice for a greater good which is to try to persuade them of God's goodness so that their heart might be changed, so that they might be transformed and stop on their path. So there's, it has to be viewed in that missional 
context, right? Give me, I'll give you another example. Let's say, Carter, you and I are hanging out, right? And this is extreme, but, um, and I, I give an example where I hope I would do the right thing, but you and I are hanging out, somebody, you know, bursts into the, the coffee shop we're in and they start shooting up the place, right? Um, you know, the question in my mind would be is, do I jump in front, you know, of the bullet and take a bullet for Carter, right? Like you could sort of play that out in your mind. Like, is that really, does that sacrifice make sense? Because I would give up my existence. I'd be dead, let's say. And when I do it that- It wouldn't help the Christian cause. Or, well, I mean, there's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Like, or, or, but see, that's the thing. That, I would have to well, maybe it would. Mind. Maybe it would. It's, yeah. it's always a calculus I have to make, right? Because I have young children and, you know, I pastor mm -hmm. a church, the people I'm responsible for. So it's not an automatic, right? That, you know, because, but from my point of view, if, if my worldview is right, and that if you being a non Christian, that would mean, you know, in the new heavens and the new earth, things are not going to go well for you, right? Then, you know, all things being equal, right? If, if I didn't have all these other things, if it, if it was just you and me, then I would hope that I would not hesitate to sacrifice my life for you. Not for the sake of sacrifice, just to be a martyr, like that's awesome. That'd be horrific, right? Um, I don't want to die in that sense or in that way. Um, but it, but because if you look at it in the overall context, you see there's a greater good that's there. So I jump in front of the gun and I take the bullet and I die. The purpose is in part to, you know, to, to say to Carter, look, this, the reason why this guy gave his life for you is because of the truth of Christianity. He's trying to reflect to you this God who exists in the hopes that, and plus it would just buy you more time, maybe more time and other people who have better arguments than mine to come along and persuade <laughs> you to become a Christian, right? So, I mean, I just use that exa those examples to say in the Christian system, if you put it in the context of the greater good, then it's then it's it's not that kind of altruism. I, I I I totally reject that that view. It's not not loss for loss sake and and the, the greater, other. So. The greater good has been used in every totalitarian state from the beginning of time to justify this kind of altruism. So if you are every every example you came up with there was an By expression. Force, of, you couldn't justify your own existence just you and choosing not to help Carter in that way. It had to be because all of these other ancillary responsibilities were around you. You couldn't let them down. Well, hey, um, it could also be that you value your life and the calculus is you're, you will not be able to change this fucking situation. You have neither the skill or the capacity to make it go away or make it better. And the best alternative is to do something else. Um, and, and that was never a consideration that your life for its own sake, for its own self has a value and need not be justified based on these other ancillary things. That's the altruism I'm talking about, which is different than the duty you were talking about before. So Keith the hack guy just says, uh, plus if Bradley jumped in the path, it would block Carter from shooting the guy. And that's the other possibility. Well, yeah, Bradley would get two holes in him instead of one. It would be as horrible. As soon as I gave the illustration, I knew it doesn't make sense, right? Because Carter is definitely going to be armed, okay. at least if he's in Texas. So, um, I, so if I understand what it is that you're saying, is you're saying that in, in, the, in the calculus, uh, I'm not taking into consideration the value of my own life. Is that what you're essentially saying? Like I'm, I'm thinking about all these other people, right? My family and all these things. But when it comes to my own life, the value of my own life, I don't take it into consideration. Is that right? I feel like you're uncomfortable with justifying 
not saving Carter because it's your own life. Right, because I have a greater good that I'm working towards, right? The greater good is not, is not I mean, my life is a good. I'm not gonna do things that bring my life to an end. But in this scenario, right, where I have someone who's an unbeliever who faces, you know, a destiny that is incredibly negative, right, terrible, uh, then he's going to die, right? Chances are he's going to die. He's going to be shot right here. So I have to make it, I'm making the choice based upon, you know, I die, but I will be raised from the dead, right? I will be in the new heavens and the new earth. And so it's so not just me sacrificing everything. It is me sacrificing what I have now, which is a value to me, but it's not of ultimate value to so me. your arbitrary narrative uh, says. But well, that's right. But we're talking about within the Christian system, if it's if it's whether or not it's altruistic in the sense that Rand, you know, gags on. And I want to say that it's not. Well, so you're doing everything. But but so what Rand would say is because Rand's analysis ends at death. Right? right. She would not be playing calculus and scales with what happens when Carter dies. He has an eternal sure. suffering. I die and I go to Shangri-La and like. Like that calculation doesn't exist for Rand because right. she's talking about life on Earth. So True. I think you're arguing, well, it's not altruistic because I'm looking at this stuff beyond in beyond saying, reality. Right. And and Rand would say, of course, it's altruistic because there's only reality. Right. But, but, but again, Rand's Rand's also greater good concept. There there is the there is the scenario under which somebody could do, apparently die for something that appears to be the greater good. For example. For liberty, you go and you die for liberty, but it's still measured by your life because life without liberty is untenable. It's no way for a human being to live. So you're still measuring it by your life as a fundamental value to you. You are pushing yourself at the back of the calculus and saying that creep's life is important. I want to save that creep. Actually, I think he should be killed. I'm the creep, right? Just want to clarify, yeah. Mark. <laughs> okay. Killer. I'm the creep. But the thing to do is to take the creep out and do your best to save your life and the people around you and, and kill the creep. Kill the creep. Send him to uh, whatever nether region you think he's going to go. I think he's just going to be. I think at the end of the day, it means that we should all carry guns. I think that's the yeah. end of the... Uh, we Whoa. can agree on that one. By the way, there was a note left in this office that says all of the guns in this room are loaded. <laughs> that was left for me. <laughs> yeah. Just in case I yeah. needed to know. Um, yeah. I, I, so just so I'm clear, you're saying it's not altruism because because you're not just making a sacrifice for sacrifice sake. You, in your belief system, you are getting something Right. For that in sacrifice. principle, in principle, it's not altruism. In reality, if God doesn't exist, then it is. Right. Then That's the is. difference. Okay. Rand will yeah, say it that, is in reality. But I think she would agree with me and say, though, in principle, if what all you say is true, then yes, in principle, you're not. And so that's the only point I'm trying to make is that in principle, the Christian teaching is not. But of course, if it's not true, then in reality, it, it definitely is. Yeah. That makes sense. I, I hate to end this discussion, guys, but I just looked at the clock, and we yeah. need to do super chats, uh, which you can or don't have to. If you don't have time, you don't have to stick around, but would love to because probably some of them are aimed at you guys. Uh, and it's been going for two hours, and I, I want to be respectful of uh, your time, both the devil's time and God's representative <laughs> time. Yeah. Um, I, I so. really enjoyed this. Um, I, just, I did, like, too. You, you helped me. Both of you helped me understand the nature of disagreement 
a little bit better between atheists and Christians. And I, I just, I'm so glad you both gave us your time today. So thank you very much. Uh, can I just, I, before I read the super chats, I do want to say this to the Christians. I would much prefer you listen to Bradley than any of the other Christian thinkers that are out there. <laughs> so can I put uh, that on my webpage? Yes. Will you do a blurb for my book? <clears throat> sure. I second. Oh, I yeah. appreciate that. Thank you. Um, yeah. All right. I'll say this. I, I tell you, I, it, because you guys are Randians or essentially Randians, I, 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 as I think we've demonstrated, we have actually a lot in common, which there are so many other groups, um, even who may agree with us on political things in which we don't, you know, like objective moral values and duties. We may disagree on the grounding of them, but at least we both believe that there is such a thing. There is objectivity and all that. So. I, I think that. it's it's that reality correspondence you talked about at the very beginning. We both believe that we can have conversations because we both believe that words are a reference to actual objective reality that does exist. And we are having a conversation about that. And yeah. and that matters. And I and I think it sounds crazy to say, but a lot of the people on the woke side, the words are just uh, we've said this before, but they're they're just Words are just a, a collection of sounds that they could use to try and get you to behave a certain way. They don't yeah. correspond to anything at all, nor do they have to. And so uh, it's almost impossible to have a conversation as a result. Yeah. Um, all right, let's do let's do some super chats. Jordy says the verdict, is get, they're going to start. They're going to be old at the beginning. They're some, some of them are about Rittenhouse. Hey, guys, the verdict, I'm going to grab water real quick, but you can you can keep going. With that's fine. Yeah. The verdict uh, really was a refreshing breath to see that justice isn't completely broken yet. That's that's how a lot of us felt, Jordy. Keith the Hack guy says I, again about the Rittenhouse trial. I was obsessed too. The trial was the right of self-defense versus the state. The state is evidently opposed to the right itself. Glad the state lost. Um, yes, Christopher Gorey says, "Keep it up. Our voice is our weapon." Christopher Baker says, "I don't know who this person is, but Mark, you might." Oh, I know. I know. A jolly is an embarrassment to objectivism. I don't know who that person is. Elja is a, is a epidemiologist at John Hopkins University. And uh, what's this guy's name who said that? Christopher Baker. Christopher Baker, you're wrong. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Mark's not embarrassed by him. I have no idea who he is, so I'm neither embarrassed nor not embarrassed. He's uh, one of the few sane voices to listen to during the pandemic. Um, Blunt, obje Blunt Objections writes, if Rittenhouse had been convicted, it could have been the start of invalidating the concept of self-defense. And once you can't legally defend yourself, who needs the Second Amendment, right? That's true. Um, here's a Mark's friend, Chris Baker. Again, maybe picking on the same guy. I don't know. Chris Baker doesn't like objectivists. He says, objectivists hate Ron Paul and love Anthony Fauci. He's just being a troll. That's just not yeah, true. <laughs> I, maybe he has some friends who call themselves objectivists. Mr. Baker, you're, you're just being an arbitrary guy, man. Relax, have a beer, it's all good. Uh, <laughs> I'll fight you naked, says, we still have a right to self-defense, small wins. Uh, Bertifarius Rex says, Andrew Cuomo just called Kyle Rittenhouse a white supremacist. So even after the trial, he's still, that's good. Uh, I, don't, I didn't know that Andrew Cuomo still had a platform. Oh, wait, is he the CNN guy? Is it Chris Cuomo that's a CNN guy and Andrew Cuomo that's the, gov the Andrew former Cuomo governor? Andrew's the yeah. governor. Who's listening to Andrew Cuomo? All right. Uh, Little Ragamuffin says, it's really hard to control a person who has nothing to lose. For me, all I have left, all I have is the Lord's come and take it. The fear of loss is what allows a person to be controlled. 
I mean, it also was. <laughs> I think that's also a very stoic outlook, and I don't think that's the right approach to life. Yeah, I mean, don't you? Could what about your kids? You wouldn't care. You're not afraid to lose your kids. I just, I don't. It's escapist. I, I... It's escape. It's an escapist eschatology, and it, and it, for a period of time in the 20th century, just dominated. It's a D.L. Moody version of Christianity, right? It's just like hunker down and hide and wait for the second coming, and it's. It's play. It's Neoplatonism is what it is. It's it's this, heaven's this ethereal place out there somewhere, and you know it's not the Jewish view, which is a very earthy kind of view, and and you know the fulfilling of the cultural mandate, cultivating, you know, taking that which is potential, making it actual. So, I just wanted to interject because I know Little Ragamuffin. and we've had her on the show, and I don't want to put words in her mouth, but I think what she's talking about is something she and I have talked about before, which is that once I, once I stopped letting fear control me, well, that's, that's the thing. Then there's no, I, I don't, there's nobody that can really, I don't have anything to lose. I do, but I'm not, I'm not as fearful of it as I used to be. So for example, yeah. if we lost our, we know we're going to lose our YouTube channel at some point. It doesn't matter. Bite your it's tongue. Present, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. You spent all this time working, you got all these subscribers and then it goes away. It doesn't matter because I'm still going to that. The end goal is not to have lots of subscribers. The end goal is to, to try and articulate what I believe to be true and have interesting conversations with people that help me understand things better and understand the world better. And I can do that regardless of how many subscribers we have that fear. And when you start fearing, I've seen people who have lost all their friends or lost their job or whatever, and, and started doing podcasts and started being part of this, wrong thinker movement if it's a movement then build an audience and then become afraid of losing that audience and start censoring themselves and start playing to the crowd and all that stuff and that's that's i think what she's getting at is like you can't have you can't fear losing these different things like you you have to keep in mind whatever your 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 supreme good is that you're working towards does that make sense yeah okay i'm kind of rambling uh, all right, Keith the Hat Guy says, I'm an atheist who has watched several of Bradley's sermons and got something good out of them. The 4th of July one was a favorite. Thanks, Bradley. Very cool. Thank you. Oh, Keith the Hat Guy. And we're going to end, unless there's more coming, we're going to end with Mark's favorite person, Christopher Baker, who says, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, there's another one after this. Here we go. Rand seemed to regard family as irrelevant. What do you say to that, Mark? Because I have a comment on that. Nonsense. Yeah, I, I don't think she viewed it as irrelevant, but she did not talk about it a lot. Um, I don't know that that, I don't think that means she viewed it as irrelevant. She just didn't I, talk about it a lot. I think because she found uh, more, I guess, a greater bond in a chosen group of people uh, whose values you um, you identify with as opposed to a group of people that you just happen to be, uh, you know, inherit some of their genes and they may represent, you know, awful humanity, uh, the awful, the worst of humanity, and and yet you are somehow identified with them, or should identify with them, or feel a compulsion to be identified with them. No, you should be identified with good people. And I think that idea that that uh, family is everything has oftentimes thrust people into a um, a real pathological relationship with parents. I agree. Um, to respect the mother and father, irrespective of whether those whether they're respectable and it in induces lifelong guilt and terrible psychological fractures that they have to deal with. So I don't think she was against family in any sense. I think she felt real bonds are those that 
people voluntarily choose. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I will point out she didn't have kids, so she didn't really have a lot of motivation to write about parenting or anything like that. Like it just, you know. Yeah, but um, many objectivists do. I know one is a good friend of mine. He's an actor. He's got two kids. He's got one, one coming on the way. And he revels in being a father, you know. I imagine he's going to be a very good one. I, you know, not that I'm, I'm not a big objectivist, but I, I was actually when I had my first daughter, like I have, I have kids. Uh, Brian Berniker says Augustine abandoned rhetoric as foundation because it is empty. The foundation of wokeism is rhetoric. Hi, Brian. I don't think I, we, I, have, yeah, I won't. Well, I just had a couple, these are not super chests. It's just from a couple of these I saved. Rodrigo said, I've been an atheist all my life, but I've been attempting to conceptualize the concept of God ever since I was a teenager. I love this subject. Uh, it's and a then fun subject. Rock Lexicon said, it's always inter an interesting conversation when Unsafe Space has religious folks and atheist thinkers, even though I'm a bit too dumb to follow all the philosophy. No, you're not dumb. That's just, look, I'm here to help put it in the four dummies format. And then, <laughs> and then, uh, Samsko says, what a great discussion. Thank you to all involved. Thank you guys for hanging in there with us today. Yeah, and Rock Lexicon says, we can end with this one. Happy Friday, all great conversations today between the VA election results and the Rittenhouse acquittal. I'm a lot less blackpilled. That, that's good. Uh, yeah, good for you. Yeah, that's good. Guys, thank you both for joining. Um, it's a pleasure to talk to you both. Uh, even though Mark is 100% right and Bradley's 100% wrong, it's, it's <laughs> great to talk to you. Yeah. I tried. I tried. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, it's very eloquent. No, I mean, I, I really sincerely do mean what I say to other Christians. I would much rather people uh, follow people like Bradley than, uh, and listen to what his arguments than a lot of the other Christians <laughs> out there. So, um, but, uh, but, you know, got to give Lucifer his due. He's pretty awesome also. So yeah, thank you, everyone, for watching. Uh, don't forget to like and subscribe and all that fun stuff. Uh, we have book club coming up this Sunday, which is Carrie, Sunday. do you have a book you want to hold up? The Handmaid's Tale. And if you want to get started on next month, we're doing Thomas Sowell, Black Rednecks, and White Liberals. Ooh, yes. nice. I love that book. Yeah, I haven't read it yet. It should be good. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for watching. If you're new to the channel, we have a deep content library that includes interviews with everyone from Mike Cernovich to Megan Murphy. So go check it out. If you'd like to see more, please consider supporting the show by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on all the major social media platforms, at least for now. And you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space chat on Telegram. See you there. Warning. This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by the Cathedral. Pay no attention to it. To be honest, I am running out of patience with the following individuals. Here's a fun fact. Experts agree that inflation is good for you. As a reminder, self-defense can only be used as a last resort. You are legally required to first see if your death effectively deters your attacker.
If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.